Hello and welcome. I'm Lori Hardy, and thanks for listening in as we continue to talk with leaders in our community. Joining me today is Dr. Shauna Springer with the Stella Center. Welcome, Dr. Shauna Springer, or Doc. Thanks, Lori. It's good to be here. I'm so glad that you reached out to me about this whole Bill Cosby thing, because I think it's going to affect more than the women that were abused by him, but probably anybody that has had any kind of sexual abuse or trauma. Yeah, it's something I've been really thinking about lately that seeing this kind of miscarriage of justice will absolutely be re-traumatizing for people who have experienced similar things or who have spoken up and take risks, you know, have not received justice for it. As a counselor, you probably see this a lot, but One thing that I experience with the people I work with, people in recovery and the homeless community, is victims get re-victimized over and over, which makes it harder for them to come forward and it makes it harder for them to get well. That's absolutely right. That trauma isn't just one discrete event for many people. You know, we think about Trauma like being mugged as a discrete event that happens in time and it's over. For many people, like those who have survived a sexual assault, that initial betrayal sets off a cascade of further betrayals in terms of when they report it, the intrusive nature of collecting the evidence of the assault, and then having to repeatedly share their story in public forums, like in a courtroom or through legal proceedings in a very adversarial process. So there are many ways that people can get re-traumatized and re-victimized. That's absolutely correct. How can people deal with that? Do do they need to just get right away with a counselor? How do we help people who are, maybe we have a family member who's being re-victimized over and over. How do we support them and help them? One of the protective factors is being closely connected to people who believe you, who have your back, and who understand how it's playing out that you're being re-victimized. Having a safe place to talk about all of that ongoing trauma becomes a real protective factor that can allow people to speak up and continue to assert what they need. Without that, it's very hard to speak up and stay the course. In a situation where nobody believes you and you're continually targeted for further trauma, it's very hard to continue to speak up. I listened to a podcast of the woman who originally reported on Bill Cosby. Initially, she didn't believe the first one that came out. But then as she started to meet these women, she realized that this really was a story and she followed them for years. And those women had done such good work by speaking up and speaking out. And they actually, some of them got laws changed about the seven-year, what do you call that? Statute of limitation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So they've done a lot of great work. And I I hate to see it feel all upset because of this new situation. Well, I don't, that's the thing, Lori. I don't know that it will be upset. And here's where I'm thinking. We might see people actually get galvanized to take action and speak up because this is such an egregious and public miscarriage of justice that people might actually react in just the opposite way. And instead of being silenced, they might really come together and say, this has got to end. It cannot be the case that people with money and power are able to find technicalities that allow them to evade justice. 
when we have over 50 women reporting that they were sexually assaulted. Um, I understand the law has to protect itself. I understand the legal basis for why he was released from prison. But at the end of the day, when you have 50 women who have been assaulted and he's released, I would imagine the message is powerful people will be able to find technicalities that will allow them to evade justice. And that is why women don't speak up against powerful people. That's right, because they take tremendous risks and there are no guarantees. So one of the things I just actually gave a talk on why sexual assault is such a hard recovery journey just yesterday and talked about how many clinicians have a bias towards action. And they think that sexual assault survivors should report the assault, should push for justice, should go into the legal system. Sometimes, you know, that's the right way to go. And sometimes it further disempowers survivors. So it should be an individual choice. And I think a lot of the people that recommend that don't always know how that process can unfold to really re-traumatize and re-trigger people who have already been assaulted. Remember Amanda Knox, who was falsely accused of murder in Italy? Yeah, I do. Well, she was a student in college, so studying abroad, and she was accused of a murder of a roommate and imprisoned for four years in Italy. And she's actually from here. And she did a podcast of other people who have been falsely accused, but she also included one person who did not stand up against Harvey Weinstein. And she said... She couldn't put herself through all those court proceedings. She couldn't do it. She still wanted justice if there was another way. And so many people just, you know, dissed on her, canceled her. But she knew that that would just take her down. And I love what you said, that it's so individual and we have to respect each person's choice. I mean, even therapy at the wrong time in the wrong way can be disempowering. And you know that I believe in the power of healing through therapy. I'm a a psychologist. But if the patient doesn't own that journey, doesn't make that decision, that I'm gonna tell you about the day that changed everything in my life. Mm -hmm. And I'm gonna tell you so that I can reclaim my power after it was taken from me. That is a very different thing than a therapist saying, oh, okay, here we have this treatment plan. And now you've got to tell me about the day you were raped in detail and do it repeatedly. If the trust isn't there, the trust hasn't been built, that can be disempowering for sexual assault survivors. So I think the key thing is really to do an assessment and be discerning about what is going to help people get their power back and what is the right journey for them and when. People that might not be able to press for justice at the time may be able to do it seven, eight, nine, ten 10 years later, which is why it's so important to think about the statute of limitations in terms of when justice can be pursued. Because for many survivors, healing needs to happen first. And that can be a, a process. That can be a process, a difficult recovery journey. That is such great wisdom. And I think, like you said, as family or friends to say, I believe you, but also to respect their process of healing. It's really easy for us to think we know what's good for somebody. Those of us who do believe in counseling would always say that's the best thing to do first. But again, trusting that person and walking beside them and building more trust for yourself and them 
I think would empower them so that when the time comes and they're scared, they've got somebody that will walk with them to the counselor or to the police station or wherever it is they have decided to go. That's right. You know, having that tribe around you that is safe, that has your back becomes really critical with the sexual assault because the nature of it is that it violates your trust at a deep level. And it can make people feel like there's no safe person, no safe process. And so in a context like the military, where a military sexual assault can happen, a person can go from feeling like they were in a society where there were rules and protections to feeling very much alone and that they were helpless to defend themselves. And so having that person or a group of people that are kind of like your tribe or your pit crew around you to walk with you through that becomes really critical to doing it in an empowered way. Which is important because what we want to do is isolate. Yeah. And so to be able to keep people around us and respect us for what we're going through. I work with a lot of people that are adults who were abused as children, and maybe some had repressed memories, maybe some just said, I'm never telling anybody, but it has affected their adult life because they either nobody believed them or they haven't known how to deal with it. What would you say about that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, in a perfect world, those who survive an assault would have justice and healing, and those are not the same thing. Even people that see justice served aren't necessarily going to feel healed from their trauma. That's a separate thing. So even if somebody like Bill Cosby were convicted, that can be helpful to survivors in making them feel like their voice was heard, but it's still quite likely that there's going to be a long tail in terms of the suffering from the damage that's been done. Symptoms like not sleeping and having a startle response when someone walks up behind you or feeling suddenly overwhelmed by a panic attack. These are all biological injuries that are associated with a trauma exposure and they can be treated. They can be treated. And my work in the space with uh, Stellar Ganglion Block has shown me that there are efficient, effective treatments for these kinds of traumas. People need to know about them so that they don't come to believe that they're broken and that post-traumatic stress is a life sentence because it's just not. Will you say more? Because that was going to be my next question, because last time we talked, be sure and go back and listen to Spotlight. Last time we talked to Dr. Springer about the ganglion block. The stellate ganglion block, otherwise known as SGB. Right. And we were talking at that time mostly about veterans, but tell us about it and how it would help somebody who's been through sexual trauma. The organization that I'm working with, Stella, treats a large number of sexual assault survivors. About 15% of our patients are sexual assault survivors. They are both civilian and military. And I think that the Stella ganglion block is a particularly powerful treatment for sexual assault because it doesn't require people to disclose the story of their trauma in order to get relief. So for those unfamiliar, Stella ganglion block is a, an injection of an anesthetic medication into a cluster of nerves in the neck, a few inches above the collarbone, that can bring a person from an overactivated state where their fight or flight system is chronically locked in the on position back to a state of calm within their own bodies. Now, here's a really important key with sexual assault. So we talked about the cascade of victimization where a person can be victimized not once, but many, many times. 
The other way that this can play out is that the initial violation by a sexual assault is a violation of a person's body. And many people, when they're assaulted, can have a freeze response that's biological. That's a form of what we call tonic immobility, where they just freeze. It's so shocking that they can't fight back at the time. And then they develop feelings of shame. What does it mean about me that I couldn't fight back and feel that they are not even in control of their own body? And then the symptoms of trauma, the biological injury of trauma can then play out in a way that echoes and mimics this over time. Because when you get flooded with adrenaline or anxiety and you feel like you're overtaken or ambushed within your own body, it again echoes this feeling of I'm not in control of my own body. I'm helpless to control even my own body. And so that kind of trauma can play out over years if people are not treated. And the stellar ganglion block is very effective at getting people calm again in their own body and really destroying that thought that people are helpless and can't have a sense of calm and control in their own physical body. Last time when you were talking about it, I was just so amazed that something could give that kind of relief because there is this sense of constantly aware. You're constantly watching, hypervigilant when you've been through something. Often people who have been through trauma may not even realize it. And so then it affects their family. And today I was listening to Elizabeth Smart, who was kidnapped as a child, and Mm -hmm. she has a foundation now. And her and this other woman were talking about how it has affected their sexual life as they're married and how they've had to have counseling around that, that it's so much deeper. I mean, it's not like any trauma, one trauma is worse than another, but trauma holds on to us and then our body holds these memories. So how do you as a counselor help people work through that? I I love the ganglion block. I'm all for that. (laughs) What else is there? Well, I actually do think that traumas are very different, have a very different impact You know, we have a saying that trauma is trauma and people mean that in a kind way to say, well, it's all trauma and in the sense that it affects the body as a biological injury. I agree with that, but I don't think that trauma is trauma. There is a very different impact if you lose your house in a wildfire along with several other people in your community. There's a communal trauma. It's not personal versus being personally and brutally assaulted by somebody in an intimate partner violence situation. Trauma of being in a war, it's it's difficult and challenging to work through for sure, but it's probably easier to talk about than being singled out and hazed within a unit in the military. So to the degree that shame connects to that trauma, and I'm not saying it's shame people should feel, but it just does because you're singled out and you're pulled out and that trauma is playing out just with you, it's going to be a very different recovery journey. And so I think what else is there in terms of SGB? There is a set of insights that go along with what kind of trauma was it? How did it impact you? How has it changed your identity? How has it made you feel in terms of being safe in your own body, in terms of being deserving of love and belonging. These are all variables that healers need to really understand and deploy. And healers need to understand that they shouldn't advocate over survivors. 
that they take action and pursue justice without a clear understanding of how that can play out for survivors and when the right time is and when they're empowered. So I think the combination of the right psychological insights, which are pretty nuanced, and biological treatments like SGB is the, should be the new standard of care. And what have you seen with clients that have gone through this and they've found healing? What is their life like after trauma? Well, they get their life. And one of the things I've noticed is that, you know, they feel uh, an openness to warm and loving feelings in a different way. It's like shifting off of being in a default mode of being in defense mode to being open to connection with people that are safe. Sometimes when you've had trauma, it's hard to see who is safe. And even if you think you know, it's still hard to open yourself up. So the case of somebody who you know is in a loving marriage, but they've been sexually assaulted, they may know cognitively that they've got a good partner, but biologically there can be a tremendous physical resistance to opening yourself up and being vulnerable And that's the echo of the trauma. That's the biological injury that needs to be addressed. I think of foster kids who come into the system early on and then they're put in foster homes, but nobody really knows their story. And so they're trying to help these children who are responding to things that nobody knows what they're really responding to. And does there have to be a knowledge of what happened? Like you said, they don't have to tell their story if they get the, the block, but even if they don't know their story, will there be that release? Well, the thing that's challenging about children is they have a hard time articulating their own emotional state, and they have a hard time putting words to uh, what they've been through. Frankly, a lot of adults I've worked with have the same challenge, to be fair. It's not just kids, but one of the roles of a parent or a guardian is to help children understand their emotional experiences to talk about them, to develop that understanding so that they can have a sense of mastery over their environment. And when that doesn't happen with a foster kid, for example, it can be really hard to go back and really know where is the pain? Where is the pain? If a a kid can't really verbalize it themselves, I think sometimes we have a sense that love can conquer anything. And I think that's a noble idea, but I think there's also this biological injury part that we miss. There are biological changes and factors that I feel like need to be addressed if people are going to find healing. And that simply loving them and providing a safe and stable environment, it may not be enough for a lot of people if the trauma is is so severe that it's caused some really deep biological changes in their fight or flight system. So yeah, I think the challenge is the same for all of us, you know, to really understand our own emotional experience, and then come into a new understanding of what that means for us and what our identity is as someone who is worthy of belonging and love and connection. And that can be especially challenging with kids because they can't articulate themselves very well. Right. And if they're abused by parents or family members, which is more common than not, that's the person who's supposed to be looking out for them. So how can their little brains even translate that. That's a massive betrayal, right? Before trust has ever really even formed. That can really set people back in terms of developing core trust in people. Can I expect that I'll be safe and that the world, you know, and other people will respond in safe ways? 
One of the most confusing things for kids and sometimes for adults too, is that the body can have a sexual response to an assault. And so I want to talk about even the hard stuff, because if you don't talk about the hard stuff, then it can ambush you and you can start to get into a tailspin around why did I have a sexual response, a positive sexual response to something that I didn't initiate or want. Both can be true because our body is packed with nerve endings that respond to touch. Um, and it's not always connected to whether the touch was wanted or unwanted. So sometimes people can develop a real private and secret shame around why their body responded to an assault. And that can be a barrier to getting care or help or talking with safe people later on because they're afraid that people will think, oh, you must have wanted this at some level when that's not true at all. I'm glad you brought that up. Can you talk about the difference between men getting well and women, because more often men might have that. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I've seen kind of it happen with both men and women, honestly, about the sexual response. Definitely when it happens, whether it's to a man or a woman, it can feel really confusing about what really love is and what is pleasurable, consensual touch, you know, when they later get into relationships where like in a marriage, you know, where that's a part of a healthy marriage, it can be really confusing. I find that a lot of men just have a hard time acknowledging a sexual assault history. And there was a striking number of my patients who were veterans who had had a family history or early childhood history of sexual assault. I haven't done a study, you know, any formal study, but I've been in so many circles with these warriors And as a theme, when people really open up about the pain that they're really holding very deep in the vault, it often goes back to sexual assault for men too. But they have a really hard time acknowledging that until you create such a solid trust and such a containing space that they can talk about that freely. And then it releases them. But I kind of come to see that many times people go into the military because They want to go into a society where they feel like there's rules that can protect against that kind of thing happening again. And many of them are psychologically motivated to become the kind of person who is physically and mentally strong, who they wish had protected them earlier in their life when they felt helpless. When people go into the military, for example, with that mentality and they're seeking safety and they're seeking to become those protectors they wish they had had. When they are assaulted or hazed in that context, it's really hard for them to heal because that's been kind of a double whammy of coming in and then having that happen again. So it's layers, layers and layers of that trauma. As a recovery coach, I find not all, but a huge amount of the people I work with, same thing. Before they did drugs, there was something that happened. And then that's how they numbed and were able to they thought survive, which they weren't surviving, but. Well, that's absolutely right. So a couple of things I would say first is that when you have layer upon layer of trauma, the voice of trustworthy people is very faint and it takes repeated interactions with safe and trustworthy people for you to begin to open up to that. I definitely had that experience many times with the warfighters I serve. And oftentimes the, the breakthrough comes when a brother says, it's okay, you can trust her, where they transfer a trust. They say, 
I've trusted her with the deepest pain in my heart. And she, she upheld my dignity and we got to a place that was of healing for me. And that allows them to open up. But otherwise it can take a very long time to open up. And the other thing to your point is that absolutely there's a link between trauma and substance use because people use substances, alcohol, tobacco, other substances to regulate their bodies when they don't feel like they can control their state. So they are using them for that purpose. We started out talking about Bill Cosby. Do you, what would the effect be, do you think, on these women if he would actually like apologize? Oh, that would be all across the board. Some of them would say too little, too late. Some of them would maybe find it helpful, but I suspect that probably most women, this is just me speculating here to be clear, would say, well, somebody advised him to apologize because the assault was over such a prolonged period of time and so egregious Mm -hmm. and he hasn't apologized any really sincere way that I'm aware of that probably people would not really receive it in a very therapeutic way, but that's just my speculation. What do you think, Lori? I don't know. Do you agree? So often I wonder because people don't, you know, offenders, I would say there's a huge percentage that don't apologize. And there's a huge percentage of people that won't believe the victim. And so I think that an apology could go a long way. However, the responsibility to heal and to have a good life, even after that, is really on us, whether whether anybody chooses to take responsibility for their part in it. Let's propose a different scenario. Let's say that somebody who assaulted 50 women were to not just make a flowery apology that a speechwriter could have written for them, but they were to say, I did that. It was wrong and it was despicable. And I'm profoundly sad. I've thought a lot about this while I was incarcerated, about the damage I've done and the trust I've broken. And here, you know, are some of the impacts that make, make my heart hurt now. And because of that, I'm going to dedicate the rest of my life to making it right. And I'm going to be accountable in how I do this. And I'm going to donate a large portion of my fortune to the support of women who have been assaulted. I am going to publicly be a voice for people who are perpetrating these kinds of assaults to turn themselves in and get the support they need so they stop doing damage to people. Um, And that's what I'm going to turn my energy to for the rest of the time I'm given. Now, that's an apology if it were followed up with action that I think could be heard in a very different light than somebody saying some elegant phrases of apology and then kind of enjoying the life that they have. Exactly. And I love it how you said that because you hit on everything. I'm going to do this and this and this. When there is sincere apology, I think forgiveness might come a little easier. I think forgiveness is a hard thing for victims because why should I let them off the hook? And I think that's what people feel like, even though I think as people who help people heal, we know that forgiveness is about the person who's healing versus the offender. Well, let me tell you about the story of my friend, Jennifer Tracy, just briefly. Jennifer's husband and one of her twin daughters were killed by a drunk driver. She was able to forgive the man who killed them because he was sincerely heartbroken and genuinely remorseful. And that made a big difference to her. She not only was able to forgive him, which doesn't mean she's not still in pain or struggling with the 
the anger and the sadness of that loss, because she is, as one would expect for someone who loves her husband and her, her child. But she also advocated for this person to receive mental health support while he was incarcerated after killing her husband and her twin daughter. So she would say, if she were here, I'm confident that the heart of the person who's making the apology really matters in terms of forgiveness. We've just launched something called the Master Guide to Mental Wellness that will take people through both of our books with videos and all kinds of guided materials for first responders and veterans. But we've been talking about doing something next on the topic of forgiveness and really thinking through some of these issues because I think you're absolutely onto something, Lori. It really does it really does matter where that apology comes from. In many victims, I've heard them say, my mom believed me and got me away from the person. Then I've heard my mom didn't believe me or my mom believed me, but then he told the story. And I've heard so many things that I think it just must be so difficult. And what I want as a person who tries to help people going through this is I want people to find healing however that is for them. And and it helped me a lot when you said right away isn't always for somebody. And I know I saw a statistic, children who have been abused sexually will often take up to 26 years before they tell someone. I want to see healing. So when you talk about the ganglion block, the Stella ganglion block, I want everybody to be able to get that. We have 20 locations. Uh, since we last spoke, probably have added several more clinics across the country. So you're in Washington, we have Seattle, Washington, there's a clinic now, Dr. Adamant, I talked to him, he's wonderful. And we have all up and down the coast, the West Coast and all over the country, 20 locations and we're in Australia now as well. So that is available, we've scaled up and really been working overtime to make sure people have access to a clinic within a short drive of, of hopefully where they live. That is so amazing. So if somebody listening, either has sexual trauma that they want to give this a try or they know someone, what's the best way to get in touch? Would it be to go to Stella? Yeah, I would say go to www.stellacenter.com and people can do a free consultation with our patient care team. You're not going to get charged for that. We'll take a look at what's going on and we will not ask you in detail what your trauma story is. We will tell you that Actually, we don't want you to talk about that with us at this time because we want to make sure that happens in an environment with somebody who's going to be able to follow up with you and that you've developed that trust with. So that's one way that we really try to look out for and protect our patients using a trauma-informed care perspective. But we'll do an evaluation of some of the symptoms and see if the treatment can be helpful and kind of take it from there. Is this something that insurance covers? It doesn't. Unfortunately, it's like LASIK. LASIK is, can change your life and help people see, and insurance doesn't currently reimburse for it. That is going to be a, a long, slow road, I suspect, but we're pushing in that direction. And interestingly, you know, Stella has a presence in Australia where this is covered because they have a different system of medicine. I'd like to see that happen because I would agree with you. I want everybody who suffers from trauma to be able to have this treatment. How much is a treatment? Yeah, it's $29.50, so $2,950. And then from there, we give discounts. So we give 20% off for veterans and first responders. We also give people stipends if they have to travel um, from one state to another to get the treatment. There is a travel stipend. And we have partnerships that have developed even since you and I last talked, Lori. So 
For example, we have uh, care credit, which allows people to pay it off over time in little installments, because a lot of times the obstacle is people don't have a big chunk of money all at once, but they can afford it if they can just pay it off over time. And then we've gotten partnerships going with Green Beret Foundation has covered Green Berets and their spouses. Mission 22 has come on board and I've just finished sharing out 20 donated procedures that they've raised funds for. Operation Freedom Paws is a service dog organization that funds procedures for the patients and clients they serve. And so we have a number of partnerships that will help pay for this. And then we give the discounts and have care credit when, when nothing else is there to kind of help support this. So maybe if there was a foundation that helped people who have been traumatized to get these procedures, that might go a long way. That would be a game changer. If there was a foundation that really helped people who've had assault, domestic violence, homelessness, trauma to get these procedures covered, that would be a game changer. I'm thinking maybe I need to start a foundation. I just have such passion for people that are hurting, but I also worked hard through my trauma. I went to counseling and then I became a coach. I so want people to be able to experience the freedom because when I see people that are, for instance, they can't handle their children and it's only because they're being re-traumatized by whatever's happening with their kids because they don't understand. Passes down, right? From generation to generation, unless we address it. Right. And there are effective ways of stopping that loop. And so, yeah, I mean, one of the other things, the updates that I have is that we've talked about, I'm maybe going to do a podcast. So I'm in concepting for that. And one of the ways that someone like you is so beneficial to what we're doing And I think the concept will be really helping humanize trauma and helping people understand that trauma is a human universal. It can change our whole life. um, It can happen very quickly. And that it has these impacts that people may not always be aware of to the point you just made, but that there are treatments that can help them. Humanizing trauma. I just think people that haven't had severe or any sexual trauma it's hard for them to understand. And so often that's why I think they tend to almost defend the offender because they think, oh, everybody's good. How could somebody be this awful and do this horrible thing? And so I think just being able to talk about it and people learning to understand could make just such a huge impact. Thank you so much. And I love the work you're doing. You're one of my favorite interviewers because I can tell that you really care because I can tell this isn't just another topic that we're discussing because, you know, you're doing a radio show, that this is personal for you and that you really care about the issue of trauma and making sure people are aware of innovative things like SGB. Thank you. And I am. (laughs) Well, thank you so much for being with us. I always love your perspective and thank you that you stay so current with everything that's going on and for the work you're doing. I'm Lori Hardy. Thanks for listening in today. We hope you've learned something new. Join us again next week as we continue to talk with people that are making a difference, not only in our community, but beyond as well.